We are continuing our sermon series through Acts. We are in Acts chapter 19. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 20 this morning. Before we read God's holy and errant infallible word, let's turn to the Lord and pray, asking him to bless the reading and hearing of his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, bless now the reading and proclaiming of your holy word by the power of your spirit who first breathed out your word. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. May you be exalted and glorified. And may we be edified and built up as your holy people. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and for his sake, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 19, verse 11 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. It is written. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all of the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Every time I read this passage, I am struck by its strangeness. I am guessing that perhaps you noticed the strangeness yourself. It's hard to get our heads around what I like to call the holy healing hankies of the Apostle Paul. Our attention might be immediately drawn to this little detail, even to the exclusion of everything else in the passage. And we will address this little detail in just a moment. But I think it's worth acknowledging that when we read a passage like this, we are 
transported not only into a different time in world history, but into another world altogether. It isn't just the foreignness of the culture. It is almost as if the very fabric of reality is cut from a different cloth. And I want to speak to that dynamic as well this morning. But I hope that we can move beyond what appears to us at the outset to be quite unusual because if we can, then what we will find is that although much has changed in 2,000 years, much has changed between the context of the apostolic age and our own, the fallenness of humanity has not changed. Sinners... 2,000 years ago are not much different than sinners today. And what this passage directs our attention to is the need for wholehearted commitment to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So more than that which might capture our attention in verses 11 and 12, I want us to see that we cannot be on the fence about following Jesus. We are called to give him our full devotion. And this is revealed to us as we move through this passage where we find three things. First, we find the delivering power of God, the delivering power of God. Second, we find the destructive power of evil, the destructive power of evil. And the showcasing of these two competing spiritual powers back to back will result in a moment of decision where those in Ephesus are compelled to choose what or rather who they will devote themselves to. So thirdly, we will examine this moment of decision. And as we look at these three aspects of this passage, I want to challenge you to be examining your own commitment and obedience to Jesus Christ. So first, we see the delivering power of God. This passage begins with Luke telling us that God was doing mighty deeds in Ephesus. The sick were being healed, evil spirits were being cast out, and let's not forget the greatest miracle, lives were being transformed and saved by the proclamation of the gospel. We see this Uh, We saw this last week. People were placing faith in Jesus, were being filled with the Holy Spirit, and were being baptized. What are we seeing here? We're seeing God powerfully at work, and God's work brings about new life. God's work brings freedom. God's work brings hope. God's work is redemptive. It is moving people out of darkness and confusion, the darkness and confusion of the dominion of the devil, and delivering them into God's kingdom of light. This is what we've been seeing throughout the whole of Acts as the gospel has made inroads into these different cultures, into these foreign lands, as the church has stormed the gates of hell. We've seen deliverance. This is what God's redemptive work looks like. And I hope that when we read these accounts of what God is 
bringing about through the saving work of Jesus Christ, we can declare with the psalmist, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. The work we saw in the life of Jesus, we now see continuing in the early church. Those who bear the name of Jesus Christ as Christians, those who are his body in the world, they continue his redemptive work. They're agents of his reconciliation and redemption. And in some ways, God's church in all places at all times is meant to carry out this work. But at this point in history, as God's church is spreading and being established on earth, it was happening in a particularly powerful way through the Apostle Paul, whom God was using as a conduit of his redemptive work. As Luke tells us in verse 11, God was doing these miracles by the hands of Paul. Because of the authority Jesus had given to Paul as an apostle, Paul was filled with this wonder-working power. But there is here this very strange report that even some of Paul's items were being carried off and used to perform miracles. And notice how Luke describes these miracles in verse 11. They aren't just miracles. They are extraordinary miracles. Now, that sounds redundant, right? Well, of course, the miracles were were extraordinary. If it was an ordinary event, one that happened according to the laws of nature, the normal laws of nature, it wouldn't be a miracle now, would it? But that isn't what Luke is getting at. He's saying that even within the category of miracles, these weren't ordinary. These are out of the ordinary, even for miracles. They are special. They are remarkable. And what makes them extraordinary is that typically miracles occur directly through an individual. In this case, the Apostle Paul, whom God was pleased to do his miraculous works. As Luke says in verse 11, that God was doing miracles by the hands of Paul. But for some reason, here in Ephesus, God was pleased even to work indirectly through Paul, blessing articles that belonged to Paul to be used to work miracles. Now, we aren't told why, this was happening, we were only told that it wasn't ordinary and that it was working to build up God's church. But perhaps we can get a hint of why things might have been happening in this manner. And the hint comes through the nature of what these items that were being used were. We are told that they were handkerchiefs and aprons. But perhaps more literally, they were sweat rags and work aprons used by Paul in his work. And we have to remember that we were just told at the beginning of chapter 18 that Paul was working as a tent maker. This is how he came to know Priscilla and Aquila. This is what Paul did to earn a living, as it were, to support his ministry. And we recall that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, For you remember, brothers, 
our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. This is exactly the picture painted for us through Acts 18 and 19. Paul was working all day as a tent maker and then going out at every opportunity he got to preach the gospel in the synagogues and in the lecture halls and in people's homes. He was doing this, as we will see in chapter 20, well into the night. He was working all day and then preaching through the night. Scripture is attesting to us that Paul was fully committed to the work of the gospel. These sweat rags and work aprons then are symbols of Paul's determined effort. His blood, sweat, and tears to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ for the conversion of the nations. So what God seemed to be blessing here by granting these items of Paul to be used for miraculous deeds was Paul's work. It was humble. It was devoted. Paul was a servant leader, and God was multiplying the work of his hands. Even when Paul was occupied trying to earn money to support his ministry, God was still using Paul's labors for his redemptive work. And and there's a lesson for us to learn from Paul here. I think that R. Kent Hughes gets it right when he comments, the power of God is released through a man or woman whose heart is so utterly committed that he or she is ready to invest diligent labor to make the gospel available, even if they need to stoop to a lowly trade. If we can get past what we might see as odd, we find God blessing the work of one who is fully committed to God's purposes. In today's world, this sort of laboring for the gospel is not only significant because it demonstrates a complete devotion to God in the work of evangelism, it's also countercultural. So many today seem to be allergic to hard and humble work. In Paul, though, we find one who did not despise hard work, who did not see it as an inconvenience or an impediment or a distraction to his calling, to fulfilling God's purposes. Rather, we find in Paul an example of God blessing hard work and using it for his glory. But as John mentioned uh, about last week's passage, this is not an instance that we should see as normative. This is very unusual what is happening here in terms of someone's items having some sort of healing power. Luke is indicating that this is not only specific to the apostolic age, but it is specific to this particular moment in Ephesus. So we don't want We don't want to take this somewhere it doesn't intend to go. We don't find this sort of thing anywhere else in the New Testament. If it seems odd to us, it's because it is. These miracles then should not encourage us in any way to give any sort of veneration to religious relics as some have done throughout Christian history. The church has been plagued with this sort of thing at certain points in history. This sort of superstitious belief and behavior is not rooted in scriptures, and and Christians should avoid it. 
In fact, the thrust of this passage is to move believers away from magic and superstition. Further, we should remember that miracles throughout the New Testament were not present as an end in and of themselves. They were always for the purpose of helping to bring about faith and commitment by providing a demonstration of God's power and the character of his kingdom. And this is exactly what is happening here in Ephesus. They were means by which God's power to deliver is made abundantly clear. And in stark contrast to the delivering power of God, in stark contrast to the delivering power of God, we are shown the destructive power of evil. Immediately after being told about the extraordinary miracles occurring through Paul, we are introduced to the seven sons of a Jewish priest named Sceva. And we're told that these seven men were itinerant Jewish exorcists. They apparently traveled around attempting to cast out demons. Performing miraculous deeds was a pretty lucrative business, especially in a place like Ephesus, where dark magic was a part of the culture. And these men, having heard that there was power in the name of Jesus, whom Paul had been proclaiming, decided to give it a whirl themselves. So these exorcists attempted to make use of Jesus' name as some sort of magical incantation to drive out evil spirits. Verse 13 tells us that they undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. Trying to imitate Paul, they declared, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Paul is lifted up here as one to be imitated, but not like this. And the results were disastrous, verses 15 and 16. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Now, we shouldn't miss that the evil spirit knew Jesus's name. The demons know the name of Jesus. They know there is power in his name and they shudder before him and they are very aware of his servants who carry his authority as well but think about what played out here this one spirit came against seven grown men and this one spirit was able to identify that these men did not speak with the authority of Jesus because they did not have the profound unity that Paul had with the risen Lord through faith. They were pretenders, not true representatives of Jesus Christ. They did not have access to the power that Paul had access to. And this one spirit dwelling in one man was easily able to overtake and wound these seven men. Now we should stop here for a moment because there are several things that should become immediately apparent to us in these verses. For instance, anyone who thinks that Jesus can simply be used for their own convenience is sadly mistaken. The name of Jesus is not a magical incantation. 
He is not a genie in a bottle who can be called upon to grant wishes. Jesus is Lord and Savior, King of kings, ruler of the universe, who should be submitted to in every respect, in, in, in reverent awe. And while Paul stands as an example of wholehearted commitment to God, a life fully devoted to Jesus Christ, these men stand as examples of those who like to dabble in aspects of the Christian faith without taking them too seriously. Who desire to use God for their own ends, who come before God casually and use his name flippantly, who think that they can otherwise disregard God as irrelevant to the rest of their lives. And you don't have to be trying to cast out demons to be treating God in this way. We can dabble with divine and demonic things in many, many more ways than just this. In fact, it's prevalent in our culture to be flippant about spiritual things. Commenting about how most Americans are spiritual and not religious, that's how people today like to identify themselves, spiritual but not religious. Molly Worthen, who was writing for the New York, New York Times, recently wrote this analysis of American spirituality. This is what she said, and I quote, Neither total submission to a traditional religious institution nor atheistic materialism feels right. We kind of do want the universe to hold our hand without bossing us around too much. What this practically means is that Americans love to pick and choose. Americans love to dabble in spiritual things. We like to experiment, but we don't want to be committed to any one thing. We, we don't want to submit ourselves to any one authority. We want to create our own adventure, as it were, when it comes to spirituality. And unfortunately, this doesn't exclude those who profess to be Christians. There is dabbling in many different religious practices, and it is all around us. Maybe perhaps we don't even, even notice it anymore because it's so common. So here's an example. Yoga. We don't really think anything about it, do we? It's all over the place. It's in gyms. It's on workout videos. It's in churches. It's even spawned its own fashion. Do people realize that yoga is a Hindu religious practice? And some might say doing yoga does no harm. In fact, it's wonderful exercise. It helps in calming the mind and bringing peace. Beloved, yoga comes from the Sanskrit verb meaning to attach or join. The English cognate is the word yoke. Yoga, yoke, as in being harnessed together. What's the point of yoga then? Well, do the math. But I don't think you want to be brought into union with what yoga is offering. It is messing with spiritual things, whether people intend it or not. There is spiritual power, whether you believe it or not. And it isn't just yoga. 
We become enamored with lots of aspects of Eastern religions in particular. You can go to TJ Maxx and you can get little Buddha statues to put all over your home. You can get jewelry with lotus flowers on them and with the Sanskrit character for om, the word used to induce meditative trance. I've seen it tattooed on people. I remember growing up seeing the symbol of yin and yang everywhere. Look up the meaning of that symbol. It is not Christian. And here is something that might be even more pernicious, more insidious. I was in a local store this past week and I saw a decorative item that had a picture of a church on it. And beside the church were these words, believe in yourself. Beloved, that is sickening. It is syncretism. It is mixing Christianity with the secular religion of the modern day worship of self. There is nothing in scripture that tells you to believe in yourself, to follow your heart, to find yourself in nature. If you want to believe something about yourself, believe this. Here is what scripture says. You are a sinner justly deserving God's wrath. You are unworthy of his affection and unable to earn his favor. Everything in scripture is pointing us away from ourselves into Jesus Christ who alone is sufficient for salvation, who alone is worthy to be worshiped and trusted and followed. Believe in him. He is preeminent. He is sovereign. He is God and Savior. It is only in him that we find the grace and love of God. And it's only in him that we are clothed in righteousness and find an identity pleasing to God. It's only in him that we find the promise of everlasting life and the joy of God's kingdom. This sort of toying with spiritual things is happening all over the place, though. And I want to encourage you not to participate in these sorts of things. If you want to stretch and work on building strength and flexibility, then great. But stay away from yoga with its incantations and use of prayer beads and the, the mindset of achieving some sort of meditative trance. These things belong to the occult. It is not just outside of Christianity, but it is fundamentally opposed to it. The Apostle Paul puts it like this, What fellowship has light with darkness? Go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Go out from the Eastern religions. Go out from the Oprah spirituality of 21st century America. Please don't bring Eastern idols into your home. Please don't post the slogans of Western secularism on your walls or wear them on your t-shirts. These things are inviting trouble. The reality that is revealed in this passage is that many are simply ignorant of what they are up against, ignorant of the spiritual forces at work, ignorant of the fact that we are provoking a holy God or inviting an enemy that is far more powerful than we are. 
we need to be awakened to the true reality. And Luke wants us to see that there is a connection between the demonic and deviant religiosity. We saw this in Philippi with the demon-possessed girl. Here in Ephesus, filled with occult practices. When people worship and sacrifice to false gods, when people begin to fool around with idols and mess with magic, evil spirits are summoned. And this one evil spirit mastered and overpowered seven men. These are the verbs that are used, mastered and overpowered. It speaks of a superior force. It speaks of a dominant power. It is a power that is bent on destruction. Its sole purpose is to kill and destroy. We're told that the men left wounded. It means permanently scarred. This is what evil does to us. These sons of this Jewish priest learned the hard way not to mess with these evil spirits and not to be flippant about their relationship to Jesus. The very clear message is that all who are fraudulently using the name of Jesus Christ will be exposed to their own embarrassment and shame. The nakedness of these men is highly symbolic. It points to total humiliation. Beloved, remember that Jesus was stripped naked before he was crucified. This was part of his humiliation at Calvary. It is a humiliation that he took on for you and for me. He bore our shame as he dealt with our sins in order that we would not have to face it. But at some point, all those who cry out, Lord, Lord, but have no intention of actually submitting their lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ in faithful obedience will stand utterly exposed. Those who have not been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ will have to face total humiliation before God as he strips away all of the pretense and exposes all of our sin. And he is a holy God who will bring his judgment against every evil and sin, it will be dealt with. And either Christ has bore your humiliation or you will bear it for yourself. So this brings us to a moment of decision. Faced with the delivering power of God and the destructive power of evil, we see that the Ephesians are now brought to a moment where they must make a choice. It's been revealed that they must no longer dabble in religious things. They must make a commitment or face dangerous consequences. Verses 17 and 18, and this, referring to the episode with the evil spirit and the seven sons of Sceva, became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. It's worth asking here, what was the cause of this fear? Was it fear of the evil spirit who had overpowered seven men? That certainly should be something that induces fear. When we see demonstrated the sheer might of the powers and principalities of darkness in this world, when we see just how destructive these powers can be, it is a frightful thing. The, the, the destructive power of evil is not something that should be scoffed at, especially if we stand against this power in our own strength. What's more powerful, though? 
the forces of evil or God? The evil spirit might have been able to overwhelm seven men, but the same evil spirit is driven out by one word from God. As powerful as the evil is, it is no match for the power of God. All that stands opposed to God will be crushed beneath his feet. It is no match for him. The darkness flees when the light comes. And what seemed to be so powerful is revealed to be nothing before the Lord. Here's how Jonathan Edwards puts it. There is no fortress that is any defense from the power of God. Though hand join in hand and vast multitudes of God's enemies combine and associate themselves, they are easily broken in pieces. They are as great heaps of light chaff before the whirlwind or large quantities of dry stubble before the devouring flames. So do they fear the evil spirit or are they awestruck at the power of God to cast out these evil spirits with a word? And the choice should be pretty obvious. God's gracious deliverance or destruction. What we find in this passage is people fleeing to Jesus Christ for deliverance, for redemption, for freedom, for life. And what we see is people coming to submit themselves to him who is preeminent over all things. It isn't just for fear. It's on account of his goodness and mercy. But this is very important. They grasp that submission to Jesus means giving all that they are. They understood that they couldn't continue to dabble in the things of this world. They couldn't continue to live according to their former ways of life. They recognized that they couldn't stand with one foot in the kingdom of darkness and one foot in the kingdom of light that doesn't work. You can't straddle the fence between living a worldly life and discipleship to Jesus Christ. God's word calls us to live with a singular focus. And throughout Scripture, we see the people of God professing that there is one thing that they desire, one thing that they seek, the Lord. They want nothing more than to be in his presence, to see his glory, to taste his goodness, to worship him. And we can't do that while we go chasing after the pleasures of this world. We can't live with a divided heart because we can't serve two masters. Jesus tells us this in the Sermon on the Mount. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Scripture has several names for this, the fence straddler, for the one who does not fully commit himself to the Lord. He's called double-minded. He's called lukewarm. And James tells us that the double-minded is unstable in all his ways and must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Jesus tells us that the lukewarm warm God will spit out of his mouth. You can't continue to sin and worship and obey the Lord Jesus. The two are incompatible. If you love the Lord, then you will hate your sin and flee from it. 
So there's a moment of decision. Serve the Lord or live according to the ways of this world. And we need to notice what this moment of decision resulted in here. Two things, confession and repentance. Verse 18, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. They openly confessed their sins. Their sins were brought into the light as they were acknowledged publicly. Sins that have light shined on them can no longer hide under the cover of darkness and continue to fester and continue to have power. But they didn't just confess their sins, they were also making a commitment to forsake them. They knew that they couldn't hold on to their formal way of life. They had made, been made new creations in Christ. The old life was gone. The remnants and relics of it must be done away with. So their repentance took a very tangible form as they turned to Jesus. They burned all of their magic books, which was a real personal sacrifice. Luke tells us that these books that they burned were worth 50,000 pieces of silver. It's an equivalent worth of about $35,000 today. And, and in terms of living standards, one of these coins was worth a day's wage, one day's wage, 50,000 of them. It was of considerable value. But this is part of the cost of discipleship to Jesus Christ. We count as rubbish our former sinful ways. We get off the fence. We turn from our old life and we flee to Jesus Christ in whom there is salvation. So how about you? How about you? Have you submitted yourself to Jesus Christ? Does he have your full devotion? Does he have your wholehearted commitment? Have you done away with the worldly things of your former life for the sake of obedience to Jesus Christ, regardless of how costly those things might be? Have you confessed and repented of those sins? Or have you been trying to straddle the fence toying with spiritual things, hoping that you might just somehow be able to get this world and also heaven. Here is your decision. Deliverance or destruction. And the consequences couldn't be higher. Your decision will echo into eternity. If this is the case, and I want to urge you this day to flee to Jesus Christ, to repent of your sin, and to come to Jesus, he alone has the power to deliver you from the wrath to come. Place your faith in him alone. Submit yourself to him alone. He is our only hope. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the precious blood of the Lord Jesus shed for us. Lord, help us to understand the cost of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Help us to understand that God has paid the price for our sin in order that we won't have to face 
the humiliation, won't have to face the judgment, won't have to face the eternal punishment for the consequences of our sin. Help us to run to Jesus, to flee to him, to find deliverance, to find life, to find freedom, to find hope. Lord, help us to get off the fence. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. In response to the gospel, let us now stand and affirm our faith. This morning we are using the Scots Confession. Christian, in whom do you believe? We confess and acknowledge one God alone, to whom alone we must flee, whom alone we must serve, whom only we must worship, and in whom alone we put our trust, who is eternal, infinite, immeasurable, incomprehensible, omnipotent, invisible, one in substance and yet distinct in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, by whom we confess and believe all things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, to have been created, to be retained in their being, and to be ruled and guided by His inscrutable providence for such end as His eternal wisdom, goodness, 